0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed podcast for April 12th, 2021. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Well, Joe,
1: I think that today, for the first time, we are going to have a conversation. We're going to discuss a couple of topics that are in the world around us, very new territory. Mm. And we are going to evaluate these with facts from all over, giving respect to them no matter where they come from, and what we're going to do is attempt to, again, completely, for the first time, inject good faith discussion into our treatment of these topics. And maybe, just maybe, we can achieve this brand new idea of keeping ourselves and our listeners adequately informed about the topics.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, we're not just shooting blind. You know, we like to think know my conceptualization of adequately informed is that we know enough to talk about it you know we're just shooting from the hip we're not talking about things we don't know but because we know that we just know enough to talk about it we know that we don't know everything about it and we are not the only viewpoints that matter you know we're not on the ivory tower sort of say we're not down there looking at all the peons who don't know anything. Ha ha ha. You know, we know it all. No, we know we don't know it all. We're on the ground. So with that being said, hey, Evan. Yes, Joe. What do you want to talk about today?
1: Joe, I want to talk about a film that I watched recently. I do watch film from time to time. And this film, I think, is going to get us tied into... A discussion of real-world events as well, because, spoiler alert, this film is a documentary.
0: (laughs) Oh, fuck. (laughs) They can do
1: that? Yeah, they make movies about real things, and they... Well, this one did hire actors, but, you know, documentary. Uh Uh-huh. I I don't have to explain the format, I don't think. Right, right. (laughs) Um... So this was actually a viewer's suggestion from listener Michael M. Thank you for reaching out, Michael. We're going to cover the film Operation Varsity Blues, a recent Netflix documentary regarding the college admissions scandal that rocked the world of higher education just recently. Yeah. So I want to kind of dive into the headline to kind of contextualize what we're talking about. I want to explain sort of the mechanics of the scheme, and then we can talk about broader implications. Because I will say, I liked the movie. I thought it was well done. I don't know if I have... I don't think the most interesting conversation here is about the film as a film. I think I would rather talk about the events depicted, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So you're not going to get like a, you know, a comparison... To
0: see how this fits in the lineage of Errol Morris, and uh, we're not going to talk about <laughs> shot lengths. We're not yeah. going to talk about composition.
1: <laughs> exactly. This is this is a film review. But the scoring,
0: oh my god! Oh, jeez! <laughs> oh, no, 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 not the scoring. The sound mixing.
1: Well, I actually have to disagree with you because I thought the sound mixing was actually uh kind of subpar but the sound editing oh oh the uh, editing uh, uh, uh. but anyway <laughs> so many of you may be familiar with this as the scandal that brought aunt Laura, or uh, what the hell is her aunt becky aunt becky from full house Lori laughlin Lori laughlin that's why i called her aunt Lori. but the characters aunt be- i've seen full house i promise um brought Lori laughlin aunt becky from full house to jail And Felicity Huffman, another famous actress as well, was implicated in tons of business leaders across the nation. Because essentially, these parents from well-to-do families had paid a man named Rick Singer to improperly get their children into prestigious colleges and universities. That's the headline. This was a huge FBI investigation that resulted in something like 50 indictments for fraud, mail fraud, wire fraud, a whole host of
0: criminal activities. Always got to look out for that mail fraud, you know, that that's one of the few hard crimes they can get you on. It is. And that's the thing is
1: that. Uh, As I understand it from the documentary, mail fraud, the the mail fraud statute is written pretty broadly so that it's one of those things that they have in their back pocket that they can nail you on for something like an arcane college
0: admissions scandal. Yeah, basically, have you ever done a fraud and did it involve mail? Like, (laughs) yeah, yeah,
1: it's not a very high bar to clear to commit mail fraud, unfortunately. Yeah, but in this case, it seems warranted. So that's the headline, is that this guy named Rick Singer was taking huge hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of payments from wealthy families and getting students into the prestigious college or university of their choice. And that's about as much knowledge as I had coming in. I didn't really understand the mechanics of it. And it is very easy to say, "Ah, yeah, the rich bastards. But I think it's worth understanding how this scheme was actually carried out. There were two main ways That Rick Singer was able to grease the wheels and get students into the colleges of their choice. Number one is pretty straightforward. He would alter test results on standardized tests such as the ACT and SAT. And how he did this was a number of ways. For a very simple, straightforward way, he could basically get a doctor to diagnose any child with a learning disability so that they could get extended time on the test. That was kind of the bare minimum. Pretty much every student who wanted to cheat the test, their parents would say, hey, you're going to take this test and see if you have a learning disability, whether or not that was medically valid. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes, things would go one step further. Rick Singer would arrange for the student to take a private exam, either the SAT, ACT, you know, whatever they needed, with a proctor named Mark Riddell. Now, Mark Riddell would give the students the test, but a fake answer sheet. So the students were completely duped. They thought they were taking the test and turning it in, no problem. But since it was a one-on-one proctoring situation, what would happen is that Mark Riddell would throw away the student's answer sheet and take the test by himself. And because he was a trained test prep tutor taking the test designed for high school students, he could get a near perfect score on command without having any advanced knowledge of the questions or the answers or anything like that. And so the students were completely oblivious, but their scores were actually being doctored because a professional test prep consultant was taking the exams for them. So, sometimes that would be enough. Kid scores a 35 on the ACT and that's enough to get them into USC or whatever. Mhm. But for a lot of these families, that didn't seem like enough. That didn't seem like a sure enough bet. And if you're paying $500,000, $600,000, you want a guarantee that your student is going to get in. And how Rick Singer was able to take advantage of this was by exploiting what he called the side door. The front door is just applying to the school. The back door is donating huge quantities of money and hoping that admissions looks favorably on it. It worked for Jared Kushner to get into Harvard. Um, But there's also a, but there's no guarantee at the back door because even if you give millions and millions of dollars, you're more likely to get in, but it still might not happen. Singer wanted to promise his clients a guarantee. And so he exploited a loophole for admission standards that are relaxed if the applicant is an athletic recruit. So he would bribe different administrators and coaches at prestigious universities to pretend that these non-athletic students were being recruited as athletes and then they could take it to the admissions board and say i'm recruiting this student for soccer and so then the admissions board would approve them even if they didn't have the credentials necessary to get in under the front door under normal admission and the lengths that would be gone through for this are, are kind of outstanding singer would doctor photos of students to give them action shots as if they were playing a sport, if possible. Sometimes the, the parents and the students would stage photo shoots. So, for example, Lori Laughlin's daughter, Olivia, was admitted to USC as a person who rode crew, but she had never done that in her life. She was an right. Instagram influencer, very famous and wealthy in her own right. And so they did a photo shoot one day of her on a rowing machine. It, it meant nothing. Um, but the kind of ingenious thing is that the students never have to take a spot from someone else on the team. So there's no downside to the coaches and they never have to show up for practice. All that happens is the coach lists them as a walk-on candidate
0: and then they never attend practice
1: so there's no yeah, part real... of
0: it, yeah go ahead yeah part of it that it, it you know you mentioned soccer but most of the time it seemed to be that they were more obscure sports than that so like yeah. sailing rowing um uh, water, polo. O- water polo yeah and it, and it and part of it was that it exploited a you know the the admissions part was part of it but the way that he got to these people was interesting was that Like uh, one of the main characters in the documentary was this guy who was the uh, sailing coach at Stanford, I believe. Yep, that's right. And he was caught into it where he never actually materially, financially benefited from what happened and from his his account that he never actually did anything. But, you know, that's besides the point um, where... So Rick Singer would try and target the coaches of these more obscure programs where they're part of the athletic department of the college, but they really don't make any money for the part, you know, for the athletic program. So they're this kind of nice to have thing for student experience, but, you know, don't really bring in a whole lot. So what he Rick Singer would do would basically be like, hey, I will make, you know, if you help me get this spot for the student, I'll be able to give a big donation to your specific program, which is probably either A, underfunded or B, just, you know, not a, you know, revenue generating sport. So it needs help to stay alive, which is the program, you know, that they, the coach or whatever chooses to be a part of. So they feel quite passionately and want to have money for that program. So, you know, without ever even like directly bribing these people, he could still bribe these programs to because of this kind of uh, circumstance of conditions and of needs and all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so all of this culminates in an experience in which underqualified students defraud the university admissions system by falsely reporting test scores for tests that they did not take and falsely claiming athletic aspirations that they do not have all done in exchange for illegal payments either directly to coaches and administrators or as joe was saying that backdoor through donations to the school something that they said was so interesting in in the Stanford, Stanford sailing example is that Stanford was listed as the injured party in the criminal suit brought against the coach, but Stanford gained money from the scheme through Rick Singer's donations. And so they pointed out that it was a little bit absurd that the coach was the one was getting all the heat when his alleged victim actually prospered. Of course, I would argue that Stanford did suffer losses in terms of its reputation and prestige, which carries some sort of financially equivalent burden. But at least in that specific case, uh, the coach may not be the culpable one. It may be a, a broader problem within their athletic department.
0: Well, and I think they also said it was like the only case of someone being charged of fraud where the person who was charged of fraud did not materially benefit from the fraud.
1: (laughs) Yeah. In this, in this circumstance. Yeah. He, and he got off free. Most people did do a little bit of jail time. The Stanford coach just had to do some house arrest and probation
0: because
1: yeah he he did not materially benefit any very
0: uniquely he did yes. <laughs> a, he he was convicted of a fraud without having really benefited from the fraud other than his sailing program got some more money but that didn't go into his pocket
1: mhm yeah so what does this mean what when we take the thousand yard view of this what does it mean and what i think it means is that we have to fundamentally rethink our meritocratic notions of college admissions. I think that we need to stop deifying elite colleges and universities because even when things are done entirely above board, which they were not in this case and are not in many cases, but even when things are entirely above board, there's still a huge amount of bias baked into the system. We know that standardized tests benefit students whose parents are wealthy enough to pay for private tutoring, people who will teach you how to get a better score on the test. The whole test prep industry is really ludicrous when you think about it, when the tests themselves are supposed to be this meritocratic benchmark, right? So the test is supposed to test how smart you are and how, able you are to do these processes but if you are able to study for it it stops testing your innate ability it starts testing maybe your preparation skills or just your dedication to it which are not unimportant concepts but they're not what the standardized testing is allegedly supposed to test and in the end what we find and this has been borne out by study after study results on the ACT and SAT don't track with any sort of other markers of student achievement. They track with family income. And so I think we need to have sort of a social revolution in what we value and how we assess value. I think that we need to be able to evaluate people, especially students and children, on a more holistic scale, something that that strips it away from some of these artifices and things that are able to be gamed so relatively easily. And I also think that in general, we need to be more compassionate. I think that it is a call to recognize that there's so much that goes on in our lives. That's beyond our control. One, I think the most emotionally impactful part of the movie was a, series of scenes that showed students ending up devastated by receiving rejection letters from their college of choice. And I I've been there. I've received a couple of rejection letters (laughs) myself during my higher ed days. It stings. Yep. And what, what the movie tries to show is that when there's so much in the system that is stacked against certain kids they are really not responsible for their failure in that sense and so and yet we treat them as if they are we say you know you weren't good enough to get into university of chicago that was mine that there you go the guys i didn't get into the university of chicago for undergrad um and so you didn't work hard enough or you you didn't write a good enough essay or or there's something that's defective within you and now you have to settle for whatever other choice you could make and i just think that we could spare a lot of people a lot of grief and a lot of hardship if we were more compassionate and more willing to evaluate people based on character than on test scores so joe what are your thoughts? You you also watched this movie. I'm not, I, yeah. I, I didn't just go
0: rogue. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, I, it's funny. I watched the movie first. That's true. Um, on my own. And then also when Evan told me he had watched the movie, I initially did not r- remember the name of the movie and thought he was talking about some weird rom-com because <laughs> doesn't that sound like it like like Operation Varsity Blues like Well, I Varsity don't know. Blues that
1: is a movie already. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's why they named the scandal that, you know, that's the moniker.
0: Right. Yeah. So, you know, I it, it was weird when I watched this movie where um it's interesting since all this fraud happened below board, it's counted as fraud. But how there, there is some version of the world where like if you if the universities had just came out and said, hey, we're going to you know, we're going to auction off each seat to, you know, Harvard and i don't know if there's a freshman class of 3000 like the 3000 highest bidders get a seat at harvard like that would like be more valid <laughs> than like it just kind of happening on the back end yeah that's really interesting
1: i want to pull that thread a little bit because you're right they're sort of based on the way that we assign commodities in the modern world, that's that's what it is, right? The people who are willing to pay for it and pay the most for it if the resource is scarce get it. And education mm-hmm. is increasingly viewed as a commodity, which is, I think, what drives a lot of this behavior. But our meritocratic system and that whole belief and ideology could not survive something like that, you know? Oh, right. <laughs> we, we have to believe that the best colleges get the best people and your effort and determination and skill are all that matters because then we can yeah. justify treating the losers like shit and we yeah. can justify not raising the minimum wage and we can justify <laughs> these grotesque levels of economic inequality and to make it to lay bare the economic commodity driven nature of higher education would I think just be putting it too much out in the open for society to bear. And I don't think that we we could sustainably live that way under our current national belief system.
0: Well, right. Well, yeah, it is weird how college admissions are so caught up in like it, it it's partially. And the other thing that I, I was like stunned about was how these people who already seemingly had everything in life were scared that their kids may not have this one specific thing in life. Yeah. Like, you know, they could have gone to a whole bunch of schools and gotten a, you know, a really good education, but there was the, you know, the clout involved into going to these specific universities that they wanted to, help their kids achieve whether it was their kids wanting them to go there or the parents wanting them to go there you know what have you i mean i mean i'm pretty sure all of those um you know kids who were uh you know trying to get into these top schools i'm pretty sure they could have all gotten into eastern illinois university but you know they they weren't just clamoring to go there Mm -hmm. um Uh, So, you know, they there were university educations available to them out there, but it's it's those specific ones. And that's what always just feels so weird to me about these these kind of things where there's just so much focus on these elite universities and they kind of get treated as a proxy for the whole like going and getting an education system but there are lots of universities out there who are not at capacity who are not um you know uh, going you know having to turn down tons of people have crazy yeah, places rit- that
1: have acceptance rates higher than 6%, you know. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so like there isn't a a shortage of uh, college or university seats to go to. It's just that it's everyone so, wants to go to the same handful. Well, yeah, it's so tied up in rankings and all this kind of stuff. Like, you know, I went to the university of Illinois for my undergrad. Wait, really? And, oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let me show you my credit card. It has an eye on it. Um, it's pretty cool. Um, but, um, And, you know, that's, I mean, it is a selective university, but like it's, you know, it seems like it will let in anyone compared to like a Harvard. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas, you know, University of Illinois compared to an Eastern Illinois university, which is, you know, just like 50 miles away, then holy shit. Yeah, it's a super selective university with these crazy high standards. But, you know, in the end, at the end of the day. It, it, it I don't know if the quality of education that I got at U of I was much create you know better than the quality of education that I would have gotten from EIU, whereas really, it turns out like, I mean yeah, sure, some schools are better able to do certain things and that's for sure. But you know, just for general educating purposes, I tend to believe that most colleges can produce a, you know, basically a baseline general education that is, you know, pretty standard across the board. But what ends up happening is that, you know, it, it you know, where you went to sc- school is clout <laughs> mm-hmm. and and it's and the connections. Clou- Yeah, the clout of the name of the university is a big part, you know, is a big deal. You know, I've had people tell me, oh, a U of I grad, you know, that where, you know, it kind of means something where, you know, I don't know if it would necessarily mean the same thing if I had been a graduate of, you know, I don't know, small, small college out there in rural America, you know, And, and I don't even. But. But then also, you know, I I have this feeling that, you know, the Ivy Leagues, a lot of it is not so much. It's not so much that the education is so much crazy better. And, you know, this is me just kind of spitballing. But, you know, I think there may be some studies out there that I've heard of before, but it's so much more that. The alumni of the Ivy Leagues are so invested in the idea of people going to their specific Ivy League schools that people who become powerful, who come from Ivy League schools, oftentimes try to look out for other people who are coming up through the system and went to Ivy League schools like that's basically the 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 benefit of going to one of the Ivies.
1: Yeah. And I I don't think that that's even exclusive to the Ivies. You know, I would, I I always get happy when I see uh, a BGSU bumper sticker or I think it's cool that we both went to U of I, Joe. I like that about us. Yeah. It's just that over time, the people who originally got to go to Harvard and Yale and Cornell and whatever were the powerful people. And so... Then if they're looking out for people, it means more to have a Harvard grad looking out for other Harvard grads than it does for me to be like, hey, BG, you know, like, yeah. it's just <laughs> we just don't have the same institutional the Evan power. Gateway.
0: Evan, the gateway, <laughs> the kingmaker,
1: you know, uh, some someday I'll do it someday. Someday we're getting there. I'm going to be 99 years old and then they're going to be like, all right, Evan, you get to hire one last person. It's going to come down (laughs) to someone from Bowling Green and someone from Stanford. And I'm going to dramatically tear the Stanford application
0: with my dying breath. Yeah. (laughs) In this specific circumstance, not them. No,
1: fuck them in every circumstance. (laughs) If you went to Stanford and you're listening to this podcast, like what are you doing?
0: Yeah. Yeah. But you, There are better podcasts for you to listen to if if you went to Stanford. I I would think you would maybe be beyond this, but I don't know.
1: (laughs) So all, all that I'm trying to say is that you're absolutely right. That I think that the difference between a political science course taught at Harvard and a political science course taught at the University of Illinois is not as big as you might think. But the difference between that piece of paper that says Harvard and that piece of paper that says University of Illinois is massive. And I'm encouraging those out there listening, at least in your own life, don't let it be so. Don't worship these places that really are just mills for wealth and privilege and retrenched inequality. Don't buy into the narrative that the reason why All of our presidents have gone to the Ivy League is because, well, smart people go to the Ivy League and smart people become president. Question the power systems that lock us into place and that deify these institutions that really are just as susceptible and just as vulnerable to bullshit as all the
0: rest of us. Yeah. Yeah. Now I know you did just a bit of a wrap up there, but I kind of want to go back to something as well when you. No, please do. I that was more of a rant
1: than a formal wrap up. Okay.
0: Okay, but um, you know I want to go back to like the admissions and testing thing because I don't know. It just kind of seems like a weird space that we exist in right now. So, like Evan, I I share the aspirations that hopefully people could like for college admissions be able to assess people on a better plane than test scores and all that stuff and how you know you know you talked about how tests really don't you know measure you know uh, smarts and all that kind of stuff and it's like i, I don't know it's just kind of limitation of of, you know, test taking, like we don't have a real test for how smart you are. So we kind of use this proxy of what stuff you do know at this age. And, you know, that kind of, you know, is used as a rough translation into academic ability and academic smarts. But, you know, it, you know, I wish we it could evaluate on people on a more holistic experience, but it, it, I mean, before standardized testing, that's kind of how it was done. And the system still favored, um, you know, the elite, Um, you know, people who are more privileged would be even better able to, you know, get their resume full of. Things that they've done, academic experiences that they've had, you know, been able to go to math camp, math camp, very important for those college admissions. Yeah, Um, you're right. No, you're absolutely right, because let's say we do make
1: it academic based. What students are going to be able to take AP classes? Those who are either in private school or well-funded public schools in rich areas are going to have more access to the better curriculum and be able to challenge themselves more or you're right extracurricular activities even just saying like i don't have to work to support my family while i'm still in high school so Mm -hmm. i can do speech team or spanish club or whatever the hell else you're right i i and i think i i don't want to try to seem i I don't want to present it as if there is some better magic bullet out there because you're right, there's really not. And maybe that's, you, you know, I'm normally right. the solutions guy, Joe, and I want to be able to, to solve it all. But this is one of the cases where I don't have the solution. Right. But I know that the current thing is really fucked up. So that maybe that's another challenge. Everyone, what do you think is the better way to run college admissions? So also you can finish your point. I, I, yeah, I just yeah, got, I, all, I got all animated yeah, yeah, there.
0: Yeah. yeah, I just want to, my last bit is that like, yeah, I, I do see in progressive spaces these days, this kind of bid to get rid of standardized testing and take a, quote, more holistic approach. But like it, it kind of feels like, um, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Like, yes, we want to be able to create a system where people are better able to be assessed without just. Um, their economic your family's economic standing being heavily determinant of it but it's also the case that while people who are wealthy are able to create you know better conditions for their kids to be able to be better prepared for these tests or game it or what have you it's still a standardization where it. Is possible for someone of lower wealth to be able to exceed on this and be able to use that as a marker for their individual, um, you know, individual aptitude where otherwise, you know, if a more holistic approach was taken that they may not otherwise seem as qualified.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I see what you're saying, but it does kind of sound almost bootstrappy, right? Like, yeah, I'm there there are people It really is. Are, I mean, it is. who are smart enough to do well on the test even from disadvantaged backgrounds. But in the aggregate it just it, it's not representative. It's not really what happens. And I don't know. What if All right, Joe, let me pitch this to you. What if there's the the body the college board or whatever something we replace it with and their job is just to like design a completely different test every year there's no way for the test prep industry to anticipate what the style of the question is the format of the test anything so that it really is a more wilderness experience like the the kids just got to hack and slash their way through it what do you think of that I mean,
0: it's it. In theory, I'd like it, but well, in theory, communism works. In uh, theory, yeah. So, so we know it, it. You're you're proving my point that in theory, I like it, but but um, you know, all of these tests that happen, um, there is a lot of design that goes into it, a, a lot of thought, and a lot of. Um, testing of the tests, um, because, you know, I, I could not just kind of free form come up with you uh, with what um, information that a 17 year old should know or here's or, what a 17
1: year old should know, Joe. They should know all of the big vocabulary words that I know.
0: Yeah, exactly. But I, I, you know, I don't know the kind of thought process markers of what shows to me that a 17 year old stands out and to varying degrees, because, you know, like on the ACT, there are um, different questions of differing difficulty, whereas, you know, um, if someone is, you know, conceivably, however, you know, X smart, they get, you know, X amount of the, uh, you know, the problems correct. But, you know, if someone's, you know, 2X, then they get, you know, 2X the amount of questions correctly. I mean, that's how the score is tabulated. And it's, and then, so, so my thing is, is that I don't know how to completely come up and I don't know if anybody knows how to com- come up with a completely new form factor test every single year without, you know, uh, running, you know, testing the test. Um, yeah. you know, maybe it could be some sort of waiting or something like that. But I mean, like I know like the LSAT, which I haven't taken, but I've researched about is that every every LSAT, there is one section that's just experimental, but they don't tell you which section is experimental (laughs) at least I don't think so because they're kind of you know sussing it out like you know is are are people working and they you know I I, there was a podcast I listened to on Freakonomics about the people who designed the the, these types of tests and they were like you know they go back and look and see you know oh so 90 percent of male respondents got this correct but only 60 percent of uh female respondents got this question correct. Like, is there some way that this certain question is subtly biased towards men or, you know, something Mm -hmm. like that. Those are things that are taken, you know, part of, I, I, I think we're trying, I, I, this is probably one of those things where we're trying to find a perfect solution where there is none. So where we're trying to do this meritocratic. Shtick where, you know, we're trying, we're saying that the best people, you know, each school takes the best people, and that's, like, the marker of it, where, you know, if they lined up all the applicants, they would all be in a row, and, you know, they would just take the first whatever, and that's it. But, I mean, like, even Harvard, Harvard gets, I mean... I mean, I forget the numbers, so I'm just going to make some up that illustrate the. Well, but to illustrate the point is that, like, let's say, you know, there's a class of 3000 at Harvard, a freshman class. They'll get like, I don't know, like 100000 or, you know, like 80000 applicants and like 10000 of those applicants are going to be straight 4.0 students but it is not the case that harvard only admits 4.0 grade point average students um that would you know they're not just taking off the top they're also assessing other things so if we just made it so that the expectation was that these colleges were accepting people based on a myriad of things and not just base academic performance, then that would be, you know, I don't know if that would necessarily be better, but it's, it would seem to be what we would want. Like what we really want, at least in the progressive sense, is just more poor people. um, You know, know, kids who come from poor families to be able to go to college. Um, Kind of irrespective of their kind of, well, you know, in, in accordance to their abilities, like you want to make sure that someone who goes to college is going to be able to handle it. But then also, like, you want to be able to find out which people who didn't do well on the test may actually end up being doing well in college. I mean, it's, it's a very <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a balancing act. And I don't know if, you know, we we have this mythos that it's just the best people, but it really isn't. I mean, that's where. People get hung up about like affirmative action where they're like, um, these people are not performing as well as us. And we're out here performing better on these tests. And why aren't we getting let in? And, you know, and, and, and that's just not how it actually works. But, you know, we have this mythos or we have this myth that it is. Yeah. I want to kind of pick up on that because
1: there's this really interesting study that I read sort of about affirmative action in law schools and they tracked people who were admitted through sort of a a normal race blind process and then those who were admitted with an explicit affirmative action candidacy and they found a couple of interesting things number one is that on average, the affirmative action candidates did perform worse in law school they got worse grades and what have you. But more importantly, when they tracked these people, this was a long longitudinal study. They went out into the world and were lawyers. There was no decrease in performance. They didn't lose cases at a higher rate. They weren't compensated less. How they did in law school didn't matter. But the fact that they got there, put them on a positive trajectory and made them competent lawyers in the real world.
0: Yeah, Well and I'm not gonna I'm saying this as a thought related, but not as a way to discredit that. It's just that what we run into is that there is no universal way to measure human achievement. Yeah. Um along a like neat scale. Um you know, that's why we have standardized testing, which is to is a crude attempt. I mean, relatively crude to what could be, but not relatively crude to what we are able to do, crude attempt to measure objectively human achievement, whereas, as we all know, it's very complicated. Um, Like, you know, I'm sure someone could, you know, look at that study and be like, oh, well, but maybe these, you know, they selected for... Different types of cases and, you know, because of that different type of selection that they were their able numbers were better able to look more like the norm than, you know, otherwise would have been or, you know, like it, it's just and and then there's so much luck in everybody's lives. And I mean, and, and in students lives, too, <laughs> like, I mean, I think back to how I was able to have a very stable family life during during high school. You know, my parents were stable. They stayed together. They made sure I had whatever I needed. And, you know, even though we weren't really rich, it if I was feeling like if I really wanted to do something that bettered my life, and, you know, it, it seemed like a positive force and that I was passionate about it, my parents would, you know, find some way to support that. Whereas I know plenty of other people who, you know, their family life wasn't stable, you know, they they had issues on that front or their parents weren't able to provide for, you know, whatever it is, those experiences that would have other bettered their lives. They just weren't able to do because they weren't able to afford them. And, you know, it's just, uh, you know, we we try to make it seem like it's all just one person's gumption, but it's just all luck. And I mean, I think that's I mean, that's the whole conversation. Um, But, you know, it's even just trying to assess, um, you know, uh, individuals achievements, you know, like I hate the the sometimes I hate it. But, it you know, it's pertinent where it's like, well, if you. If you measured intelligence by your ability to climb a tree, then a fish would look pretty dumb, wouldn't it? Or something like that. And I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, in some ways it's true. I mean, sometimes I feel see that stupid meme around, but, you know, it's I mean, it is true in a sense, you know, and, you know, it's trying to figure that out and, you know, what level. What do we want a higher education system? I mean, and it's all predicated pretty much where, you know, today's higher education is not about the, you know, the the in a vacuum virtue of belief in education. But education seen as a gateway to economic mobility. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if that wasn't the case, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Yeah. Um, You know, if it was. Just happened to be that college was just some something some people do like, you know, you brought up communism, but this is kind of (laughs) the case in communist countries where, you know, college and getting an education is just something that people who are more inclined to do that do. Um, whether they, you know, like it more, they have an ability or they just don't want to do, you know, physical labor or something. I mean, like, I mean, shit in, in Cuba, uh, a taxi driver makes like so much more than a doctor makes, which just seems like crazy to us, but that's just the economics of doctoring and taxi driving in Cuba. Um, so all of this is to say who's to say, but, (laughs) but, (laughs) but well, but I think it, where
1: I'm coming... Go ahead. It
0: it It's not so much who's to say, it's that the, the problem identified in Varsity Blues is a big one, and we can talk about it, but at this point, it, I don't know if there's a silver bullet.
1: Yeah, I certainly wouldn't are. say there's a silver bullet, but maybe where I'm coming down on this is that Operation Varsity Blues exposes... A big hole within our social construct and that is we have no real way to make sure that the meritocracy is fair and what this means to me is that maybe we can't reform it maybe we can't ever find a system where the meritocracy is truly based on ability and not privilege maybe we don't even want that what I am asking for is a call for less social meritocracy and more social egalitarianism something that says everyone gets a little bit of a break we understand that everyone has different circumstances and so we're going to make sure that the floor is a bit higher because we understand that you're not in complete control of your own destiny that's what i think i'm getting at so if that's anything we take away prefer egalitarian ideas and egalitarian policy preferences to meritocratic ones that's how i feel
0: yeah that's a good way to put it because i mean meritocracy yes it is great but i mean who's able to get more merits <laughs> i mean yes, yeah, rich, rich if you, if you, <laughs> if you would think about it rich rich people yeah they're they're able to do more just kind of innately yeah structurally so yeah So, yeah, let's go. Go watch the movie. It's
1: now streaming on Netflix.
0: Now, I don't know why when you said initially that, oh, it's with with actors and stuff like that. I don't know why, but I had gotten in my head the idea that the guy who prayed Rick Singer was Rick Singer.
1: Oh, (laughs) (laughs) no, it's Matthew Modine from Full Metal Jacket.
0: (laughs) I don't know why I had thought that like the guy looks so the part from what was described. I was just like, man, that's curious that they like let the guy who was the guy be the guy, but I don't know why I would have ever. Thought that. Okay. I know <laughs> I like promised we weren't
1: going to talk about documentary history, but now we have to, because it's come up organically. There is a movie 1990 Abbas Kuristami, an Iranian filmmaker, made a documentary called Close-Up about an incident in which a man impersonated a filmmaker and claimed to be researching a film and insinuated himself into a family that he was claiming to study when in reality he was not a filmmaker and he was just conning this family. And when Kiristami, a real filmmaker made the film, he had all of the roles played by the people who are actually involved in the case. Yeah. Right? I, Down I, to like I, I had criminal heard about judges. This. I've probably told you about it. Cause I think this movie is one of the best fucking movies I've ever seen. Um, that is not on Netflix. It might be on the criterion channel. I would have to look it up anyway. It does happen. And it's really fucking cool when it happens. I love close up. Anyway,
0: <laughs> <laughs> it came up so. organically. So I get yeah. to do it. No, 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 I, I, I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> Like I had also heard that like you know there's like a big court scene where a whole bunch of people show up for it and they like got all the original people who, like, yeah like up.
1: the judge and the barrister and the bailiff and the lawyers it's all the right people and like when they recreate like the scene of the guy getting arrested, it's the real cops that arrested him arresting the real guy on film I don't I, I can't believe they did it
0: it's 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 film inception. Bah.
1: Bah. Yeah, just edit that out and put in the Howard Dean scream instead.
0: Yeah, 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 Howard Dean. So, Joe, what do you want to talk about? What do I want to talk about? No, I'm asking what, Evan, what do I want to talk about? Culture wars. Oh, yeah. Culture wars. Um, I mean, I don't know this was
1: I, I always this ask was kind of freeform. And it's, it's spontaneous yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Wow, you guessed right, Evan I wanted to talk about <laughs> culture wars. We didn't talk about this before or anything and it's not kind of a joint subject um <laughs> well, so so Biden has been president now for a few months and... You know he he got the big uh, what was the one the Cares Act was the most recent one, you know yeah. the big COVID relief Stimmy bill you know what what have you whatever you want to call it, um, and what has happened, kind of it, I don't know it feels like kind of inevitably, but it really didn't have to be inevitable is that what has happened now is that now that Biden's president and not even now like i don't know just like not even like specifically because but the culture wars man they're just they're just happening all the time and it feels like i don't know for like people like Evan and i i don't know if these culture wars are really salient Or things we really care about. But it sure does seem like. On the conservative side of things. And like Republican politicians. It seems to be the whole thing. Like. So. We had talked about a while ago. Or we had offhand mentioned. How. uh, Politicians and conservative people. Were in an uproar over the um, Dr. Seuss estate choosing to stop publishing like four Dr. Seuss books because they had deemed them to contain insensitive material. Now, you know, some people went through and some of the things were raw. One book was um, seemingly taken out because they um, said the word or the phrase Eskimo fish Which, you know, it's dubious, you know, some would say, but it, you know, they made that choice. But you would have thought that, you know, a mob had shown up at the Dr. Seuss family's house, you know, threatening death, demanding that they stop publishing these books. Like, that's how it felt like it was billed and like i don't really care either way whether the doctor seuss foundation publishes these books anymore because i don't know there you know there are plenty of copies of doctor seuss books out there and you know and they have discretion over what they have and you know some of them have things that kind of seem racially and may seem racially insensitive but then others don't you know it's kind of it's kind of a whatever deal to me and it doesn't make a whole lot of, you know, I, it wasn't anything at the forefront of my thought or anybody else's thought, but it's something that happened. And now all of a sudden, you know, people, some people are an uproar about it and other people are not. And, and this is just like a pattern that's happening. Like I remember um, when the Grammys happen and megan the stallion and and uh cardi b did a performance of WAP, and you know a bunch of conservatives got triggered about you know that you know republican officials i you know i I, distinguishing these people is is very important you know like pundits and stuff we're like ben shapiro yeah you know the ben shapiro's the tucker carl the tucker's carlson of the world (laughs) you know The the people of that ilk. And I I don't know if I have a a super deep conversation to be had, but it's just weird how these culture wars have evolved over the years. Like, to me, the big, the topic of the culture war, I felt like was always the war on Christmas. (laughs) You know? Do you, like... Evan, if you were able, if you were to name one thing that you always thought the Culture Wars, you know, TM, were about, what what would you think about?
1: I kind of think about, um, like, rap music being a site of big culture wars. You know,
0: yeah. Yeah. It is. That's kind of what comes to mind. And... You know, there was and then recently there was, a you know, a culture wars thing where the MLB came out mm-hmm. and moved their all star game from Atlanta, Georgia to Denver, because Georgia just recently passed a bill that really clamped down on voting access um, and voter rights. And they, you know, were, you know, felt. I don't I don't know if the MLB felt pressure from activists or anything like that but they you know they very clearly cited that they felt like they could no longer host the game in Atlanta because of what just happened. Um and you know I remember um you know a whole I remember the uh, NCAA pulled out some stuff when when North Carolina was going to introduce a a a uh, transgender bathroom bill or something like that, which, I mean, hell, I mean, there's been more developments on that front. <laughs> Arkansas enacting a a grotesque law against trans people recently, which is a real, like, real consequences of the culture war and not just, you know, people on Fox News gesticulating. <laughs> but I don't know. Like, it, it, it just feels so weird because... Culture is something that people care a whole lot about. And in any society, no matter what, there is kind of this conservative culture that exists in the backdrop. I mean, conservative life is kind of like the it. – it is the nascent state. It is the water that we live in. It is how people live in society, like – um, you know, even though I'm a progressive person, I don't overthrow every structure of my life. um you know, I don't change everything from what my parents did. I I keep a lot of it, and there are some, you know, specific things that I believe in changing. So what happens has been happening in the American society is that, I don't know, we we reached some sort of peak zenith of conservative cultural value, like back in the 50s, maybe where, you know, the kind of conservative take on culture was fully expressed in all of like media. Like Evan, you could probably talk about this better, but like all TV, all culture, you know or, you know, most mass produced culture that people interacted with went through strict codes that basically ensured a conservative ideological viewpoint was expressed or preserved, right? Yeah, especially so TV, I
1: think, was just sort of naturally more conservative. But film, there was overt censorship. There was a statute known as the Hayes Code, which for a long time, prohibited certain ideas and themes from even being discussed within American cinema. And it wasn't until the Hayes code was repealed in the mid to late sixties that you saw any sort of Frank discussion of the more unseemly parts of human nature. One thing that we talk about when we talk about the Hayes code is that it really influenced the way that narratives could conclude. So In film noir from the 1940s and into the 1950s, what you see is that the the sort of devious character always has to die or otherwise be thwarted because the Hayes Code stipulated that we couldn't have anti-heroic people beating the system. They didn't want that depiction out in the world. And so that definitely restricted the types of stories that we as Americans could tell ourselves about ourselves. And it wasn't until the more
0: libertine 1960s that that was reversed. I mean, yeah. And then but even once that came out, what you like, what people would do or would get mainstream attraction was still just over time. It like worked itself out. I mean, I mean, it's almost like a Zenith of the other way where, you know, this past decade that we just had was, full of depictions of Um, Mm anti-heroes. Like, I mean, some people even conclude that that's what led to the prevalence of Donald Trump was that people had been primed in TV and all this stuff to um, be more sympathetic to anti-heroes. And that, you know, all of a sudden a politician who comes out, who is like just openly an anti-hero and he ends up, you know speaking to a sector of the populace and mm-hmm. you know enough to win the presidency but you know when the Hayes code came down and like all this other stuff it like really if we trace the culture wars quote unquote they really go back to the 60s right like if you were to like if you evan yeah, kelly culture- were to say
1: Yeah, I I would say that the 60s is the point where legal standards were relaxed that allowed the culture wars to exist. Because before, you know, it's not really a war if one side is just being completely suppressed. So I would agree to peg it there around 66, 67 is when there was even allowed to be a second side in the war, which then precipitated the war.
0: Yeah. I mean, and, you know, part of the culture wars was brought about by views on war. Um, Yeah. You know, that was a big part of it where um, it had traditionally been seen before that, you know, if the government had, you know, chose to go to the war, then it was seen as justified. But Vietnam comes along and then. You know, uh, there's a segment of, you know, and this is also brought about by structural technological change. You know, people are able to really see the war in real time for the first time, and they're not really liking what they're seeing. And it doesn't really seem like they're winning. And so it just gets drawn out. So a lot of people become anti-war. And then, you know, it's almost seen as like a betrayal of the country that people would come out and be anti-war. When you're, you know, the, you know, model people had used before was, you know, like World War II, which is, I mean, it, it World War II was the real, like, sh- you know, best case scenario for American, you know, competencies and doing good in the world. Like, it's like the only good war. <laughs> yeah, like there were clearly evils like imperialist Japan you know and and fascist uh you know nazi-led germany and italy were clearly being bad guys like in the the clearest sense and fighting against them was the you know it's very clearly a moral good and and even from the historical perspective i mean there are some things around the edges you know there's the bombing of dresden there's there's the dropping of the bombs on Japan that are contested. Um, but but generally it's seen that you know World War II was a good war to be part of. And and you know, it's almost like the lesson that we learned from World War II was that you know, it can be good to go to war against our adversaries, and then we go to war against people who we believe are our adversaries and doesn't come out super well. And you know, I, I think if anything, the culture wars are what really exist when you truly have a society that's free to debate and express different views. And people having very conflicting ideas about it. Like, I would say that American society today is like, we are probably the freest to say whatever we want and express our views in our art and our words. However, we would like the most out of any period of time in American history due to, you know, the technology, but also the openness of the space. And it Mm -hmm. you know, people will say that, no, this is actually a time where people are least able to say their ideas. But what is happening is that it used to be, you know, this, the culture wars always gets into um, like cancel culture stuff. This is like one of the big, you know, wars in the culture is over this idea of canceling. And I mean, we've talked about this before, but maybe this is a slightly new way to look about it is that in the in the very conservative days of like the Hays Code and all that kind of stuff, there was so much canceling happening, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't out in the open. It wasn't done by the mobs of people. I mean, sometimes if if a certain work got out, people would get out and be very mad about it. You know, they'd be outraged about it. But it, it was that the canceling happened in quiet. Um, like, if you came up with a radical movie idea, you know, say, you know, showing that the police are sometimes corrupt you know way back in those days that film just wouldn't get made exactly and and or if you had the gall to profess views that you know said that i don't know that like maybe black people deserved um recompense or you know it had a very specific struggle in the united states that required further attention you could be um you could be canceled Be Actually censored. Yeah. 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 So it was something that just kind of happened in the backdrop. You know, I could see, you know, in the past, you know, there are corporations where somebody was a spokesperson for them and they say something a little too maybe lefty or liberal or, you know, offends the, uh, you know, offends the sensibilities of people like i remember um bill clinton's surgeon general insinuated at some point that masturbation was part of a normal healthy lifestyle oh yeah
1: that whole thing
0: yeah and they got asked to resign like that is essentially the conservative version of canceling where you someone says something and then the higher powers that be lean on one e- one each other and people just get let go or they get put away or they get, you know, silenced in some form. So what ends up happening now in the present day is that we're able to have canceling that goes in the other direction. And and I'm sure there are points and, you know, i all stake out there have, you know, uh, canceling it for um, two conservative views happens like, you know, it definitely has been in the past that people with race, you know, rampant racist views get let go from places, you know, especially for people who choose to espouse those views and, you know, people who have been violent or, you know, what have you. But it seems to be that the current day is that. It's no longer the elites, or maybe it is now, you know, with the MLB thing, you know, happening, but it seems to be this fear that there is a mob out there of people who have these liberal values, what have you, and they are out there to, as a mob, kind of go and loudly try and cancel these people for expressing views that they dislike, you know, whereas it's not as clean as just having, you know, some executive of the company be of a company be like, yo, no, that's not acceptable. It's it's so much more that, you know, there's someone out in public, they say something and it has to, you know, if they could if it could brush over, they'll just let it brush over, but there's a segment of the population who believes that those things are not acceptable and need to be punished in some way. You know, I think in society, people definitely believe that there are some viewpoints that need to be punished, and that doesn't matter whether you're liberal or, or conservative or what have you. People have that view, so it just seems to be that this is where we're at. Um, Yeah.
1: And it's something that you've talked about before, Joe, is that there's always boundaries on what is acceptable to a spouse and still be considered in polite society. And we're it's always been contested. Right. It's just that right now we see it contested before our eyes on social media instead of being contested by a board of three censors that are reviewing a film script you know and, and i and i think
0: i, I to interject i think yeah, the the scope of what is being considered in the murky boundaries of what is polite or not is much co- closer to the mainstream of people's thought than it has historically have been Yeah, that makes sense. Like where people are trying, you know, in the past, the lines had been drawn on the greater outskirts of society. And it was easier to say, like, yes, of course, it's easy to cancel a member of the KKK because the KKK are out there and they have some pretty nasty beliefs. And it's easy to say that those people and their beliefs are bad Whereas now we're trying to have a conversation about, you know, things that are a little bit more complicated, you know, like Mm -hmm. whether Black people are still owed something special for their treatment across historical society. That's a much more complex and murky area to be in than just you know, fighting against people who believe that, you know, black people are of a different species and need to be annihilated, you know? Yeah.
1: And you can get really specific with that. I want to express an example that happened to Justin Timberlake. So at one point, Justin Timberlake tweeted out something like, gosh, I can't wait until people see that we're just all one race, the human race. And there was a very large section of Twitter that wanted to cancel him for that comment. And part of me understands it, you know, it it sounds really close to the idea of race blindness, you know, oh, I just don't see race, I see we're all the human race, yada, yada, yada. And that actually ends up being really toxic and really harmful because if you don't see race, really what you don't see is is racism and you don't see the ways that these structures have marginalized people of color and hurt them over the years but i think in this specific scenario it doesn't seem like justin timberlake is trying to be overtly racist or even overtly colorblind i think that what he's speaking to is the idea that there is some common humanity that we all share and if we embraced that and accepted each other instead of trying to put each other down based on the basis of race and when i say put each other down i mean white people should stop putting black people down on the basis of race i don't want to create a false equivalency here and get myself canceled but nonetheless can wait for alex
0: to cancel us
1: <laughs> he just hits unsubscribe and then we're done we have no yeah we're listeners. done that's it that's it <laughs> Uh, But yeah, and so that's an event where certainly I can see where people would be upset, but is that something that really should be so despicable that it gets canceled? No, but at the same time, if you really believe that statement equals colorblindness, colorblindness equals perpetuation of racism, I can see where that would really upset you. But the thing is... Another thing that we always have to consider is that people trying to drag Justin Timberlake on Twitter doesn't really end him. You know, that's not going to be the death knell of his entire multimedia career. So I don't know.
0: Yeah, it's so. So here's where we go with this. I, I think I found the through line is that the culture wars is really a kind of pitting of two sides where one side is the kind of people who were comfortable in the old system and felt like it served them and kind of hold some of those older views like you know i i do understand the impulse to be like Hey, Doctor. I mean, wh- what was wrong with Doctor Seuss? It's Doctor Seuss. They're children's books that have these silly stories with these silly, you know, images that you know, uh, you know, really you know cater to a kid's sensibilities. And you know, some of my favorite books were Doctor Seuss books. So how could it be that you know we go and are we just? wantonly canceling people and are we going to say that you're a bad person for reading the cat in the hat and you know and 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 then there's another group of people who are like we're trying to consider these new views or these views that you know do are are to try and correct greater harms that were unseen by society as law at large or un un uh you know not paid attention to by society at large and trying to provide credence to them and basically everything boils down to something like that um you know and, and different sides trust different people like in our pre-show, I, you know, I mean, geez, I, the Iraq war was, you know, kind of a polarizing and, you know, even though it was a war war, it was also a culture war um, mm-hmm. where, um, you know, we went to war and, you know, a lot of people believed the evidence that would, or not even believe the evidence, just believe that if the president of the United States said we needed to go to war, to protect our national interests with these people. And Saddam was clearly a bad guy, maybe not as bad and as as much of a threat as we would otherwise, you know, you know, was presented. But regardless, you know, there was believed that there was a certain amount of respect due to that decision, believing that our leaders would you know, uh greatly consider the risks and wouldn't try and dupe the population into doing things. At, you know, something like war that is so bad and so big. So, you know, some people didn't want to believe that, but then there were other people who felt betrayed that, you know, that they were duped into going into war and felt like it was a big boondoggle that had no real clear plan. And, you know, felt that they were lied to and, you know, that You know felt a realish you know felt like they were being shamed for ever even you know trying to point that out that they were somewhat un-American you know Um, I mean that's how it became a big culture war thing and you know it's also interesting now how since Donald Trump came through the culture war has really changed In, in, in previous eras it was stuff like gay marriage or abortion It really seems like the culture war now. I mean, one of the big things, I mean, you know, you have all your small things like, you know, Cardi B and Megan the Stallion on the Grammys or, you know, Dr. Seuss or the MLB game, you know, but, but, you know, there, there's a lot of culture war among immigration um, brought on, I mean, partially brought on by years of not doing anything about immigration, but then also Donald Trump. And then it also seems to be that, once again we're there's starting to be the culture war against trans people, which is worrying. So I don't know it's just there's a lot going on. it's multifaceted, but there it, the good old culture wars in America we you know we're having the conversations that we've never had before because we are never really allowed to have those conversations mm-hmm.
1: so. And I mean, it's also related to polarization, right? Because I think that not all the time, but in some cases, there is either room for a very clear headed evaluation of which side is clearly right and which side is clearly wrong. And then in other cases, I think there are times when both sides could admit, hey, there's ground on both sides, maybe we don't have to be so vitriolic. But because it's all lumped into our partisan identities and we're kind of in this state where our identitarian fear is constantly activated. You can't just say, ah, eh, well, you know, I wasn't going to go to the all-star game in Atlanta. Anyway, I'm not going to go to it in Denver. Why do I care? You have to get on Twitter and you have to say, Hey, fuck you MLB you hypocrites. And it's, it's just in a way it's really unnecessary. And yet it's where we live.
0: Well, and it's also just interesting how this takes place. Like, so the, doc, I, you know, the, the Dr. Seuss thing is, is a great prism to look through a lot of this because it, it, it's, I feel like it's kind of telling because it was a private entity designing on its own not to publish these books anymore. But it's also interesting because like they announced it. Like it was an announcement that they were no longer going to be publishing these books instead of just quietly not publishing them.
1: As is done every day in the publishing industry.
0: Yeah, every day. (laughs) But but even with properties that are are still popular and have problematic, you know, parts of it, like I don't ever recall that the rights owners of tom and jerry explicitly announcing which episodes are still going to be in rotation and or able to be bought or sold you know being Mm -hmm. produced for consumption like that's that's not something that they make very public but there are definitely episodes that you really can't legitimately um you know, through legitimate means uh, obtain and watch anymore.
1: Yeah, I, I think of it really specifically right now for 30 Rock, because sometimes people will report on it. Like 30 Rock stripped four episodes of their show from streaming services and pretty much everywhere for potentially problematic or offensive content. But 30 Rock didn't put out a big statement that was like, we are not doing these four episodes. It's just that people online noticed and reporters did investigating and entertainment reporters, you know, and eventually it came to light. Oh yeah. These are the episodes that aren't here anymore, but they didn't make a big to do about it.
0: Yeah. And, and it doesn't spark a culture war because interestingly, that's, that's how the old canceling used to work. I mean, (laughs) that's much more akin is that, Hey, um, so this thing, that, uh, we don't really find super great. Um, we're just going to stop it and we're not going to make a big fuss because making a, you know, making an announcement of it is drawing more attention to thing than we would ever otherwise want. So, you know, I, I can't help but think some, but if the, uh, whole Dr. Seuss thing, was just like a ploy to get people to buy more. I mean, <laughs> Dr. Seuss sales went through the fucking roof. Yeah. When, when that happened, which was all money going back to the people who did the canceling that people were upset about. Yeah. <laughs> like, or, or like I, I am very much reminded, Uh, you know, um, there's this video by a guy named H bomber guy and he, it's called woke brands. And it was just kind of an exploration of how, There are brands out there who will try, you know, express themselves as being woke, but I mean, it's almost just a ploy because there was one, you know, one of the big examples was um, at one point, you know, Hannity said some things Hannity says, and people successfully lobbied Keurig to stop running commercials on Hannity's show. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Keurig made an announcement that they were no longer going to be Advertising on the Tucker Carlson show. And what you got was a whole bunch of videos of people going and destroying their Keurig, something that they had already bought yeah, um, their own property. But then also, like, it, it's pretty certain that maybe Keurig sales went up because, you know, pe- they got that free publicity people got it in their heads. Oh, Hey, you know, I had been thinking about getting a Keurig. Maybe I'll get it now. You know, a mm. lot of advertising is just reminding people about a thing instead yeah. of, you know, <laughs> trying to, to, you know, it, make them aware of it. So, you know, it, it is a ploy that companies can do where they can do some of this canceling out in the open and, you Um, then all of a sudden, you know, make a big stink and, you know, their sales go up. So, I mean, that's just another dimension of it. You know, I'm pretty sure this MLB All-Star game is going to have way more interest in it than it otherwise would have because they decided to move it over a political thing.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, I care about the All-Star game. I follow baseball, but now you're getting people roped in who haven't watched baseball in years, couldn't give a shit about baseball, but now they're all animated on either side of it.
0: Well, they're like, oh, I heard this game was a big deal. Might as well watch the big game, you know?
1: <laughs> or at very least, the people who are upset about it are talking about it and then someone else sees it and is like, oh yeah, baseball's back. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. like, you know, I, Oh, I can watch the game. But sometimes it feels like it doesn't even matter what the constituent company does i think about like the mr potato head thing where
0: oh that was great
1: (laughs) yeah mr potato head is going to just change its brand name to potato head and you know just meaningless marketing decision and so the conservative culture war machine has spun it as oh man, PC libs and their gender-neutral utopia can't even let us have Mr. Potato Head anymore. Despite the fact that the individual Potato Head toys still have gender, they're still Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head. And... There was really yeah for (laughs) clarification,
0: like you would buy Mister Potato Head, but it was Mister Potato Head branded Mister Potato Head. Now the distinction is is that the brand is no longer Mister Potato Head; it's just potato Potato Head. So now when you buy a Mister Potato Head, it's a Potato Head branded Mister Potato Head.
1: Yes. No,
0: that tracked. That made sense. You did yeah. it right.
1: Uh, yeah, so much, so
0: much potato head. It doesn't mean anything anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah, and so Mattel or whoever the hell owns Potato Head didn't try to like make a big thing. They were just like, "This is what we're doing," and then the outrage machine inferred some left wing motive and made it the cause celeb
0: of the week. Yeah. Now, now let's, let's have a brand go the other direction. Let's, let's have Kleenex start calling it Mr. Kleenex. <laughs> <laughs> And, and and cause some weird culture war the other way and have conservative... Uh, I stand with Kleenex changing their branding to Mr. Kleenex. You know, we need... I wonder if there's not
1: some of that that goes on with, like, Chick-fil-A because, you know, there was Chick-fil-A and then you found out that the, the, the guy of Chick-fil-A donates lots of money to anti-LGBT causes and there was a big liberal backlash. But I wonder if secretly there's not some, maybe not even so secretly, but if there's not some part of the Chick-fil-A brand, that's okay with the liberal backlash because it means that in this polarized climate, it's going to push the other half
0: of the customer base to Chick-fil-A. Oh, yeah. I mean, if it was truly damaging to their brand, I have no bones about it that Chick-fil-A, which is a very competently run business, would very much snip that stuff in the butt mm-hmm, like like chick-fil-A as a business is so well done that I don't see them as letting this uh, you know, some ideological baggage get in the way of them, you know, doing a stellar business model.
1: Yeah, but um, in the status quo, if they end up being seen as the conservative chicken chain, I don't think they're upset
0: about that. I got, I'll admit that they do a good chicken sandwich. I, I, I I still eat a Chick-fil-A.
1: Now, see, here's the thing. I have not eaten a Chick-fil-A since high school, and I don't intend to for ideological reasons, but as, and again, I haven't eaten this chicken in like 10 years. So I I can't speak that, that uh, coherently on it, but I remember the chicken tasting horrible. The waffle fries
0: I loved. But the oh, chicken, well. is, I remember... Is this such an Evan uh, moment? <laughs> this is peak Evan.
1: I mean, shit, dude. You're, you're telling me that, like, a Popeye's chicken sandwich... I love Popeye's. That's a great sandwich chain, chicken sandwich. Um, although, all right, this is going to definitely take us off course. But, like, the chicken sandwich wars are back. And I've tried some of them. And I feel like everyone is just failing to do a Popeye's. Like, KFC's sandwich wasn't that good. McDonald's new sandwich wasn't that good. So, you know, cancel me for I, that.
0: I, I also have to imagine, I mean, like most food, it it's it's a I mean, it's a quality of when you have it, you know, who makes your individual sandwich. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I, I just can't help but think that you probably got when you went to Chick-fil-A like 10 years ago, you maybe got one of the bad ones. I mean,
1: it's possible. But I want to I want to more attack McDonald's here structurally, because I think that the way they build their sandwich, their new one is flawed because it's just bread, chicken and pickles. And I don't like pickles. So I just had to eat a chicken slab between two pieces of bread. There was no mayo.
0: There was no like sauce on it. Like that's stupid, right? No, that's the Chick-fil-A sandwich and I like it. Yeah. See, I don't I'll I'll oftentimes put mayo on extra. And that's perfectly fine with me. Yeah, no, so. Popeye's does it
1: right. Because even if you don't get the pickles, there's still like a sauce on it. You're not just like so eating Joe a complicated and Evan chicken So a tender. culture
0: war on the chicken sandwiches. <laughs> um, but, yeah.
1: Yeah, sorry. We, we've diverged a lot. Please yeah. uh, re- return us yeah. to normal. Yeah, yeah anyway. So,
0: so brands are able to make their way through the culture wars by kind of promises of you know, one side sticking it out. I mean, fuck. I mean, the my pillow guy really staked it in the opposite direction. <laughs> um, I I wonder how that's doing, fascist pillow man, Michael O'Dell. <laughs> <clears throat> which it which it I I want to point out. I I I you know we try to. We try, we're not always successful at just name-calling here. You know, we want to be adequately informed and we want to be in good faith. But Mike Liddell, like, he went to President Trump to advise the president to put the country under martial law. Like (laughs) I I, It's true. I that is like not that every instance of Martial law happening is a case of fascism, but it really did seem like that specific instance of advising of martial law was trying to advocate for fascism <laughs> like yeah. the clampdown in society of its freedoms for a greater ideological goal. Like that, and that
1: also based on non existent election fraud claims.
0: Yes, yes, yes. He very Insistent on the, I'll give a little bit more credence than others will. Unsupported at this moment to my eyes, claims of election fraud. And uh, that, you know, I'll let it be at that. Like, I want to leave room open that if there is election fraud out there, I am against it. I have yeah, just we not all been, are, Joe. Yeah. It's,
1: just, it's just there's no evidence that it happened. Like,
0: sometimes I feel like just, you know, just sometimes certain things have to be said, you know, to try and, you know, try and win some favor. Like, but but anyway, the culture wars, they've been raging and it feels like they've been extra raging because, um republicans in congress really don't have an answer to the joe biden agenda other than culture wars Mm -hmm. i think this was kind of the lead up is that there isn't a unified policy dimension that they you know would otherwise want is that they just don't like this and they want to keep being able to buy all the dr seuss books (laughs) like and isn't it just crazy how members of congress these days don't Seem to treat their jobs as legislators, but really just as like media figures.
1: Yes, like no, this like, is so relevant.
0: Like this has been a trend for a long time, but but it's just been like way more out in the open than it otherwise has been. Mm-hmm. Like like just so much. I mean, like Matt Gates. Like I mean, he's in the you know all the the shitty stuff that he's done and the the pedophilia and all that stuff and the paying for sex yeah that's all bad but i mean like even before then the guy was just basically a podcaster who you know took some votes you know yeah (laughs) yeah that that's essentially what continued to behave that way yeah (laughs) yeah continues to essentially be a podcaster who does some votes that's ted cruz i mean ted cruz is just kind of a provocateur at this (laughs) point i mean he's always has been But but just kind of I don't know, just a little bit more explicitly now. Um, Yeah. Following my Republican Indiana senators on Twitter
1: gives me a great window into the ways that they are trying to discredit Biden. I'm sure you're aware of the whole attack on his upcoming infrastructure plan whining. Well, it's not infrastructure. They're not saying that like any of the constituent policies are bad or that the spending would be bad but merely that it's not their puritan definition of infrastructure
0: yeah yeah i mean i mean you I know mean, at least it was a little bit more competent during the obama days you know like you know they would take the stimulus and you know oh is this really stimulating the economy you know th- four hundred thousand dollars for beekeepers or something like that (laughs) like you know i find that a little bit more credible than Oh, they say this is infrastructure but is it infrastructure you know yeah (laughs) um which is what's the substance there (laughs) like if i were actually to interface with that debate a little bit more i would say there's a whole lot more that's infrastructure than we, we we you know than just roads and bridges but you know that I, I don't I don't see that as a super good faith attack, so I don't know. I mean, maybe we should have the good faith debate about it. Maybe this episode should have been about infrastructure and what classifies an infrastructure and what our broader ideas of what is included in the idea of infrastructure. But but that's not what we're doing today. Maybe in a few weeks, just like this culture wars thing, we'll have an actual segment about it and be totally late to the cause and not prescient, but um <laughs> But, but all of this, yeah, yeah the 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 congressmen or ge you know, Congress people, i I think we still call them congressmen, don't we? You know, and sometimes, I don't know that culture war, remember that culture war when people, you know, instead of things being like chairman, congressman, you know, all that kind of stuff, oh and firemen, say, yeah, you know, fire people, firefighter, are, that one's Firefighter firefighter's good. firefighters good and gender neutral, you yeah. know. Yeah, the fire people, um, but as I say, the other one. Um, but yeah, these Congress people just um, out there, uh, really just kind of being media personalities. And I and you know people will level that at you know, Democrats too. And not to say that they do that, but I don't know. It feels like uh, AOC, as much as she does Twitter, she also shows up for committees and actually exactly. has, like bills yep. and stuff. Yeah, like. <laughs> Marjorie Taylor Greene is just doing shenanigans. <laughs> and, you know, not to say, you know, you, you don't have a right to do shenanigans, but, you know, I like to think that a politician is a little bit above just doing shenanigans.
1: No, Joe, you've actually hit on something really important here is that is the defense, right? Is like, well, I, I have the right to do this because... On some level, of course you do. Any of this conservative shit, like, yeah, you have the right to say that trans people shouldn't exist. You have the right to do whatever the fuck you want, but... Can't we evolve the discourse away from what you have the basic constitutional right to do and instead talk about what you should do as a senator, as a member of the House, as a human, as an as an American? That's the conversation that I think is more interesting and that some people do want to have, but we always get bogged down in, well, I've got the right to say this, which is of course definitionally true but completely uninteresting
0: yeah i don't know i am trying to find like some analogy i mean it's like if you invited someone over to spend time at your house and then they just like go directly to the bathroom and spend like two hours in there and you're like you know they get out and you're like what the fuck man why were you in the bathroom for like two hours and he's like what can i go to the bathroom I'm like, yeah, but I mean, it's kind of weird. And I kind of invited you to come hang out and you just spent all the time in the bathroom. Now you got to go. Like, it's just weird, you know, (laughs) like there are there are (laughs) crazy sometimes. Sometimes I feel like in our society today, it is almost preposterous that we expect anybody to do anything. But (laughs) but there are certain expectations for certain people out there that are completely justifiable. (laughs) Mm-hmm. um and 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 i believe that congress people not doing shenanigans i think that's a i i, I, think, I think that's. you're a, pretty reasonable there joe i like to think i'm being reasonable asking <laughs> that our con people in the halls of congress aren't doing shenanigans aren't doing like gotcha pranks aren't doing like I don't know, Stephen Crowder bits in the halls of Congress, you know, <laughs> yeah. like I'd like to th- I'd like to think <laughs> that 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 shenanigans is above or, or below a, a congressperson. But, you, you know, uh, I guess we seem to not be in that era. Yeah, it, it do seem to be that way. Also, just as a note. I have no idea whatever Maxine Waters says. I don't I, it seems to occasionally be a lightning pole for conservative outrage. I don't know who Maxine Waters is. <laughs> I think she I think she maybe she's been a democrat for a long time. I don't she's not the party. I, she's not <laughs> a thought leader, I don't think. Um, maybe I'll get canceled for saying this, but like, I don't know. I'm telling
1: you, Alex's finger is hovering over
0: that. Unsubscribe yeah, yeah, button. yeah. Unsubscribe, man, man. Because I'm saying I don't know who really care about what Maxine Waters says. But anyway, 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 anyway. I don't really have a lead out of out of this, but yeah,
1: I just think that. um For people who are attempting to evaluate the current culture and the current state of things in our republic, think carefully about what kind of conversations that you can get bogged down in. And then also think about what kind of conversations you actually want to have that you think will be productive. And let that guide your media consumption. Let that guide your online interactions and i'll leave it at that
0: yeah sure let's 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 make it that <laughs> <laughs> yeah let's let's try and be a little good faith um, argue about thing and not thing adjacent um, always good always good always good to talk about thing not thing adjacent um, yeah i think that's about my wrap up Um, my thing is my bit was more talking about the thing and not like a natural conclusion that we should take away from thing, I guess. But, um, (laughs) anyway, um, we hope that you've enjoyed this episode of adequately informed episode 55. Oh man, we're getting up there. Yeah. Um, Hopefully, hopefully we've got. Hopefully you're enjoying this. We got the hang of it. Um, or not. If we, uh, if you have any thoughts, let us know. Podcast at adequatelyinformed.com. I'm still paying for that email address. <laughs> and this um, this episode proves that we listen to the suggestions. Yes, yes. Um, so we hope that you enjoyed listening. We'd like to thank Anthony Hish for the music. But anyway, my name's Joe Hicks. And mine, as always, is Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been... Adequately informed.